Our red scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the book of Romans, chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. For I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because... Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the Creator rather the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same, but also approve those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last Lord's Day, we saw Paul's summary of the gospel in verse 1 through 7. As we take up now, continuing through the first chapter, uh, Paul seems very happy to be headed to Rome. Whether this letter is written before he knows how he's going to get there, or whether it's written after he knows how he's going to get there, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Paul is going to arrive in the city of Rome uh, a prisoner. He is going to arrive between Roman soldiers chained up on his way to house arrest. It is not how the average person would want to show up into a Rome. But there is no hint in Paul's statements as he begins this <coughs> most systematic treatment of the gospel that you will find in the New Testament of any sort of remorse or sadness at all. He is overjoyed that he is on his way to Rome. He wants to go there. He has felt the divine call to bring the gospel to the Romans. And in the end, it's not going to make a lot of difference what the worldlings do to Paul. The gospel is going to go to Rome. It's going to go to Rome with Paul and James. The Romans are going to assume those chains will keep the gospel from going anywhere. It's not going to work that way. The apostle is going to arrive at Rome, and he is inviting the Roman church into work with him in the evangelization of the city of Rome. And in the end, God's purposes are going to stand. It is God's good pleasure that the people of Rome, the very last people that most readers of the scriptures would assume would be chosen by God for evangelism, the people of Rome are going to receive the grace of God. And nothing can stop that. And Paul is writing with an almost giddy kind of spirit, I'm on my way to meet with you. I'm on my way to incorporate you into the evangelism of Rome, and God will be glorified. He moves from this into a discussion of spiritual gifts. Now, it's a very brief discussion, and you can easily just kind of jump over it. 
But the apostle says, okay, now, you know, I'm on my way. I wanted to come. Now, the first thing I want to talk to you about is I'm going to come and I want to impart to you a spiritual gift. And the language is what you would expect if you were reading 1 Corinthians or something to that effect where the apostle talks about the gifts of the spirit. What is the apostle talking about here? Well, the spirit's gifts were manifest in the early church. The spirit manifests his gifts in the current church. The spirit is active. And the gifts of the spirit are something that the Christian should rejoice in. Um, is Paul talking about that? Well, an argument could be made that he's not. In fact, you could see him saying, now I want to come and I'm bringing a spiritual gift, but now I'm not talking about those things. You may have thought I was, but I'm kind of backing up and I'm saying now I just want to you know, be encouraged by you and you be encouraged by me. I want to help establish you, that sort of thing. It could be read that way, and I'm just putting that forward to be fair. But honestly, I don't think that is. I think when Paul talks about coming and wanting to bestow spiritual gifts, wanting to be the apostolic tool to bring spiritual gifts to Christians at Rome, he's saying just what he means. He wants to see the Spirit move through his ministry and people receive spiritual gifts. But he is also rather subtly telling us what those gifts are for. There are Christian traditions that focus on the spiritual gifts inordinately. Uh, they will even say, now, you, you can't really be a saved person if you don't have some of the more flamboyant of the gifts. Uh, Paul here says, now, I want to see spiritual gifts bestowed upon you. What this is going to do is really kind of two things. One is it's going to help establish you in the faith. So the gifts of the Spirit are not just supernatural special effects. They're not Flash and Steven Spielberg kind of magical things. They have a particular purpose. The Spirit is going to give spiritual gifts so that you will be established in the faith and you will be encouraged i want to bring a spiritual gift to you and as i do that you're going to see my faith and as you receive it you're going to have a bolstering to your faith and we are going to be encouraged in the lord who we are experiencing so the two things put together are you will be established and you will be encouraged these two things, when you put them together, talk about what bond together a religious community. What establishes a Christian church? Well, it's the spirit of the spirit. It, it's God moving among his people, establishing them in the faith. And Paul uses that phrase, establishing them in the faith, encouraging them in the faith. They come together encouraged in that faith, and God builds together a temple for his spiritual worship in the Lord. And that is what the spiritual gifts are for. Paul has made no secret that he is coming with a, 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 a plan for their life. He has a wonderful plan for their life. 
they are going to be bearers of the gospel. And to bear the gospel, the gifts will be useful. They will uh, be the tools that the Christian will use. And they will be put together as a faith-filled gospel people by those gifts. We very often sing Psalm 133. It's a short psalm. I've noticed that in a lot of worship, uh, Psalm 133 gets brought out when you have particular conflicts happening in the church. I remember being at General Assembly, and I think it was like 2009, there was a big fight over federal vision. And so the first thing that we did was we sang 133 because isn't it wonderful that people are in unity? Um, that's not really fair to Psalm 133. It's actually designed for worship and constant thought. And we sing it here pretty often. In fact, we will probably before food today. Psalm 133 establishes the environment in which God wants to bring about new spiritual life. Brief Psalm, three verses. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Established, encouraged, that's going to create unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Why is it good? Why is it pleasant? Well, it's because of the next thing the Psalms talk about. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. So Aaron is the priest. He brings your sacrifice into the temple. He stands for you to God. He is the type and shadow of Jesus Christ. The, the, the priest works your reconciliation. And so it's good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's, it's like the anointing of the priest who, who goes in to God for you. Um, it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. The dew of Hermon, uh, Hermon was a mountain where you grew a lot of crops, and the dew caused it to be very verdant. So the image there is of new developing spiritual life, uh, just like the priest is, is working out your reconciliation, spiritual fruits and crops are growing. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So the message of the short psalm that we often sing is that when God wants to bring about new spiritual life or the development of new spiritual fruits and such, the environment he wants to do that in is an environment where brethren dwell together in unity. And Paul is effectively saying that the spirit moving among the Christians at Rome by the giving of the spiritual gifts, those gifts are going to promote that kind of unity. They're going to promote establishment, they're going to promote encouragement. And really, that's what the work of the spirit ought to do. If you see what's called spiritual gifts, but it's actually causing division, or it's causing confusion, or it's not really doing that, then that's not really God doing it. But God is real, and God's spirit still moves among his people. And uh, Paul wants to see evangelism happen, so 
focusing on them coming together in this kind of encouragement on the faith is a natural thing to talk about right at the beginning. But having pointed out that Psalm 133 is the environment where God wants to bring this to take place, the environment is not the means. There is in many churches a thought that if we just all get along, if we're all very friendly together, we're all buddy-buddy, we're warm and huggy, uh, God's going to, to, to work through that. The world is going to see God in that. And generally that doesn't happen. God wants us to be unified. God wants us to dwell together in unity. That is the environment he wants to sow his new life in. But when the world sees that, all they see is people living in harmony, and they do think that's kind of neat. <coughs> but there's not really a message to that. Uh, the world may even say, now, you know, Christians have something we don't have. Well, that's really weird. And then they go on. But... God uses a specific means to cause spiritual life to happen. And the means is what Paul here describes as the gospel. This entire letter is going to be about the gospel in some way or another. And Paul introduces it very directly here. Um, he is not ashamed of, quote, the gospel. What does the term gospel mean? Well, you can be in religious environments for years and never actually have it defined. But if you are familiar with the scriptures, you know what I'm about to say next. It means good news. There is a message that you are desiring to hear. It warms the heart. It is something you belong to hear. And now somebody comes and declares it to you. The apostles uh, dip into the book of Nahum at places, and they point out, you know, just like a runner coming and declaring the, the city of Nineveh has been destroyed, this, this terrible city that was the Nazis of the Old Testament, they're, they're never going to come and harm you again. They've been destroyed. Uh, blessed is he whose feet bears the good news. Well, that's the word that's used here. There is a good news, a message that God uses to be the means by which he works spiritual life. <clears throat> what is that message, and how is it conveyed? Well, the apostle tells us the gospel is, quote, from faith to faith. What does that mean? Several uh, theologians have tried to quantify what that phrase means. If you read from an original New International Version of the Bible, they very helpfully decided to interpret it for you. They don't translate it from faith to faith. They say, now the gospel is salvation from first to last. That may be what Paul's meaning. Honestly, it might. But honestly, you don't want your translators doing your thinking for you. That's not necessarily... The meaning or certainly not necessarily all the meaning what does faith to faith mean well maybe it's from first to last maybe 
it is from an entry kind of faith to a mature kind of faith. A number of people have put that forward. The gospel strikes the heart with the supernatural power of God. Uh, you develop kind of a beginning faith, but it matures and grows. Uh, maybe it means from a faith given to the church that is then given to the individual. Um, not likely, but that's been put forward. Uh, maybe it means from the faith of the one bearing it to the kindling of faith in the person hearing. I don't know that any of these things are mutually exclusive. Paul is emphasizing that the gospel has a certain power and it's carried by faith and it works faith. And all of these things may in fact be part of it. Uh, it is from first to last faith. Martin Luther uh, had his epiphany reading this passage. He was meditating upon the word deep in the night. He had been preaching on the Psalms for about two years, and he had been developing this understanding of a gracious God from his lectures on the Psalms. But here in reading this, he came to realize Everything about our relationship to God, just literally everything, is based on faith. It is not based on good deeds. It's not based on your proper keeping of the sacraments. It's not based on what denomination you're part of or anything else you want to throw in here. Even though all those things are very good things, it is absolutely from faith to faith. And I think the first and last of these are the most profound. I think that if you see the gospel doing anything apart from faith, you don't have the gospel. If anyone says, you know, you will be saved by the gospel and baptism. You will be saved by the gospel and speaking in tongues. Or you'll be saved by the gospel and church attendance or what have you. Uh, Paul says the gospel is all about faith from first to last. But I also think it's very profound that it can mean God works faith in the one who is going to bear the message, and it is from their faith that God works faith in the heart of the person hearing. There is a, a, a certain flame to flame, a certain match to match. God creates spiritual life in a person, and that person, like a burning match, will set others on fire not in a destructive way, but in a burning book way, a flame that never consumes. The gospel moves from people who truly believe it to people who then believe it to people who then believe it. The gospel will be like a brush fire worked by God as God works faith in people's hearts. The... The term that Martin Luther used that night when he realized that salvation is just a faith was justification. And we're going to hit the term justification as we go through Romans. This is going to be a major word. Martin Luther realized we are justified only by faith. The term here, though, is salvation. And justification is how you're saved. But what is 
salvation. We use the term so freely, religiously, we lose some of its punch. But to be saved, to be given salvation, means that there is something that wants to utterly destroy you. There, there's something that is your enemy. There is something that wants to just utterly ruin you. And someone or something just opposes itself and delivers you out of that. You are in the burning building. Your future is decidedly uncertain. Smoke is filling your lungs, but suddenly somebody climbs up the outside of the building and carries you out. You are choking to death, and someone does the Heimlich. You are going to die, but somebody intervenes, and you are alive. If you can imagine yourself in that kind of situation, you can probably feel your pulse beginning to race. You can begin to feel a certain panic building up. You have a certain sense of helplessness going on. That's good. Because that's what the term is supposed to convey. You have a desperate, life-threatening problem. And it is far more important than any of those things. All of those things I just described only destroy the body. But as you know, God has created us to be eternal. The spirit lives on. If you die in the burning building, your spirit continues. If you choke to death, your spirit continues. But what Paul is talking about our needing saving from is a matter of absolute eternal ruin. You are lacking a righteousness. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, because there is a righteousness that this gospel reveals. This is another churchly word that Again, we can throw it around and we lose the power of it. What is righteousness? Well, in common parlance, it's usually an insult. That guy just thinks he's more righteous than me. He's self-righteous. You just think you're righteous. Actually, I do think I'm righteous in a certain way. I am righteous because I have had righteousness imputed to me. And we're going to look at that at length as we go through Romans. But the term righteousness is actually a very good word. It means to be right where you're supposed to be. It, it means that you are doing what you are designed to do. Someone has shaped and molded you and put you in to the machine. You are a, a part of it, and, and you're supposed to be doing something, and you're doing it. So many of you are mechanics. Uh, you know you know how parts work in a truck. You know if they're where they're supposed to be and they are tightened the way they're supposed to be and they're not got cracks in them, they're working. And if they're on the far side of the engine and disconnected, the engine isn't going to go. Well, God has designed all creation the way he wants it to be. And human beings were designed righteous. Adam, Eve, our forefathers, they were what God wanted. 
They did what God wanted them to do. Uh, there was no uh, hostility between them and God. Everything was right. We are now so wrong that if somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to put you in your place, you'll take it as fighting words. But what we actually need is for God to come and put us in our place because we are born out of place. We are born broken. We have the crack in us. We are not tightened. We are in the wrong part of the engine. We do damage rather than health. That is how we come into the world. And as we develop, we just get worse. We are, de we are not designed, but we are inclined to destroy the engine. And the more the engine runs, the more damage we do. And God takes that mighty personal. We are not what he wanted us to be. And God is a wrathful God. The apostles' words, not mine. And it may not be what you think it is. When the term wrath is used, you may be picturing the hellfire and brimstone preacher who begins to slabber and shout and he looks like he's angry, and he wants to feed you a Bible, and he's just really passionate because you're bad. Wrath doesn't actually have anything to do with that. Wrath has to do with legality. Judges bring wrath. When you have broken the law and the judge sends you to jail, he doesn't necessarily hate you in any way. He may not have any passion involved at all. But it is his job as a righteous judge to hold the law. You've broken the law. Wrath is the penalty for lawbreaking. Well, we're born into this world lawbreakers. We are broken. We begin to break the law the moment we're born. That's who we are. And we are out of fellowship with God. We are not what God wants us to be. We are children of wrath, as Paul says in, in Ephesians. We are desperately in need of being put back in right relationship with God, with our fellow man, and with creation. And Paul says there is good news. God has done something, God is working something, so that that can happen. You will be retightened, you will be retooled, you will be made as God wants you to be, you will fit into his creation. A righteousness for you will be revealed in this message. It is good news. Paul is unashamed of it. He wants the Christians in Rome to bear it out to their neighbors. It is all about the gospel. And the gospel is a message. But messages have a content. And the apostle doesn't leave us hanging on what that content is. Like I said last week, when Christians are called upon to, quote, share the gospel, we have to think of some systematic way to describe it so that people understand. And there have been some very noble attempts at that, and there is some value to those attempts. I mentioned the four spiritual laws. That was a popular track 25 years ago. The Romans Road is a kind of a systematic walk through some doctrines about Christ. It's all well and good. 
But at the end of the day, what is the message? Well, Paul says it here twice. He says it at the beginning, where he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And then in verse 16, he says it again, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You see, the message is not just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is not just that God exists. It's not just that you can be better than you are. The message is actually the man, Jesus Christ, and specifically the Christ part. The gospel begins deeply in the Old Testament. And if you don't know that, you can't read the Old Testament aright. God calls together a, a people, and he gives them the Mosaic Covenant, he gives them worship of the temple, and he gives them a skeletal structure of their religion based around officers that God gives. There are actually six officers in Old Testament religion, but three of them are what is called anointed. A prophet comes and he pours oil over your head when you begin your ministry. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. You're being sealed by the Holy Spirit to the office you're going to hold. That doesn't happen to elders in the Old Testament. It doesn't happen to scribes. But it does happen to prophets, priests, and kings. These are the great offices. These are the essence of the relationship with God. A priest goes between you and God and bears the sacrifice. Jesus is a Christ. He's anointed as priest. He is a priest that bears a sacrifice to God for you, a substitution. This is the gospel, the gospel of Christ. And generally, when evangelicals think about the gospel, that's what they think about. Jesus pays for your sins. The blood of Calvary washes your sins away. Are they wrong? Not at all. This is the gospel. If the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't wash your sins, you're not washed. You need a bloody religion. You need the blood of Christ to cover you. If God doesn't pay for your sins, they're not paid for. But priest is only one of the anointed offices. And if you go back to the Hebrew Bible, there is a promise at various places that there will be an anointed one who will be the fulfillment of the priest, and Zechariah, you will have the fulfillment of the prophet. Moses says, the Lord will send a prophet like me, him you should hear. If you don't listen to him, you'll be cut off from my people. Um, there will be the <coughs> king of kings. David, I give you the kingdom. If your sons walk before me and are blameless, and you'll never cease to have a man on the throne. And then the promise is made wider in Jeremiah where the prophet is given to tell the line of David, now even though you didn't walk before me and your sons are being thrown off the throne, I am going to establish a king of kings from your line. 
your line. He's going to be the branch of righteousness. He's going to be king forever. There is a promise of all three offices that there will be one fulfillment that will fulfill them forever. And so there will be a priest that fulfills everything forever, but also a king that fulfills everything forever and a prophet that fulfills everything forever. That one anointed person, and nowhere in the Old Testament do you ever see anyone hold all three offices. Some will have two, but none three. That one person whom God will send, who will be the anointed prophet, priest, and king, who will be his son, God will work through these offices, and as God does these things, that's the good news. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I understand the priest bit, but how is it good news that Jesus Christ is king? Or how is it good news that he is prophet? Well, good news is good news. You are unrighteous. You are out of step. You need a righteousness to be revealed. You need uh, reconciliation. But you also need fixing. A king subdues his enemies. A king brought you to Christ if you're in Christ. Do you honestly think if you belong to Jesus Christ now, if you have faith, and Paul has said the gospel is all about faith. If you have God-given faith, do you honestly think there is in you the ability to work that? Now, to be fair, the term faith is used a little differently place to place in the Bible. There is a fleshly faith that we're told even demons have. But human faith of you do you honestly believe that in yourself you have the ability to work the faith that will connect you to Christ? I don't have that. I don't have the ability to do that. That is a supernatural gift. That is the arrows of the king subduing me to himself, killing my old nature, and raising me to life in his kingdom. It is him putting his boundary walls around me and saying, this person is mine, and I will defend him. I will defend him. I have, I have deep, abiding sympathy for the person who believes not only did he work faith to connect himself to Christ, but now he also has to continue his faith to connect himself to Christ, or he will fall and he will be lost. The good news is not only that Jesus is priest, but he is king. The king still bears his bow. The king still bears his sword. He who subdued you to himself will now defend you from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He will not allow his kingdom to be taken. This is good news. And then what of the prophet? A prophet comes and tells you, you should do this, and you should not do that. The average evangelical thinks, okay, this is the law. And the law is not of the gospel. They are totally separate. Never will they meet. Well, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots are no different from the law or the gospel. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, the apostle Paul says, now, the law is for wicked people, 
And then he goes through a lot of wicked people. And then he says, now, or anything else that is contrary to the blessed gospel, which God has given me. And in saying that, Paul says the do this and don't do that are the same law or gospel. But law and gospel are two different ways of relating to God. If you want to relate to God and say, I will be perfect before you, you will look at me and you will say, wow, look how righteous that guy is, what he's done. That's relating to God by law, and you're going to lose. But Jesus Christ, who pays his blood, Jesus Christ, who subdues you to himself and protects you, also comes and speaks to you what is true and what is false. Is that not good news? When we're told that God saves a people for himself, we are told there is a purpose of that. And that purpose is that you will be a peculiar people. You will be different than the world. How will you be different from the world if you think like the world? You won't. But Jesus Christ, the prophet, comes to you and he gives you, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what good people do. And you're a saved person. You have been given his righteousness, and we're going to see all about that for, for weeks. You've been given his righteousness. It is no longer on your shoulders to walk perfectly before the Lord to be lost. But you have been made his citizen. You have been made his willing subject. You have had your mind changed, your spirit changed. You have been brought to life by the king. The blood has washed away the sin. And so now you want to please God. You want to be that peculiar person. And the good news is Christ is prophet. He will speak very directly to you. I am amazed at some of the more atheistic writers that I read, people like Mark Twain, who will look in the eye and say, you know, um, people will tell you the Bible is ambiguous, but it ain't. And the parts that really bother me are the parts I really understand. Because they do. Because Christ comes and he declares what righteousness is. And if you're not a saved person, it's not a good bit of news that Christ is prophet that's condemning you. But for you and me, Christ, the Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, his word enlightens our path. Psalm 119, right? Thy word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path and all that good stuff. That's actually part of the good news. It is not preaching law. And Paul says, I want to come and I want to bear a message to the people of Rome. I want to tell them a, a certain human being has been alive on earth. He was the son of God. He is the son of God. He has been made alive according to the Holy Spirit. And he is for you the prophet, the priest, the king, this is the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth is the gospel. By faith, he can be apprehended. By faith, you can bear him to others. Faith is a gift of God, as we shall see.